ask you to turn with me to Genesis, the first chapter, the opening five verses of the Bible. Uh, we'll be uh, spending time uh, throughout the scripture uh, in this, uh, this um, introductory message on a series of passages on uh, the Holy Spirit. But we'll be starting with this passage, the Lord, the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. And God separated the light from darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Well, I'm curious if you have any expectations or hopes uh, for yourself and for your church over the next six weeks and then beyond as we consider the work of the Holy Spirit. Well, I'll tell you right out of the gate what my hopes are and what my expectations are. And that we would grow as a people, you and I, that we would grow as a people, not only knowing the truth, but knowing the power of the truth. Do you hear the difference? Knowing the truth, but knowing also the power of the truth. We will be considering the glorious gift of the new birth that creates the capability within us to live for the glory of God, truly the glory of God. We'll be considering as well the grace of adoption, which enables us to live freely as sons of God, to realize as well that we are married to another. That is, Jesus is our spouse. To realize as well that we are moving in this life of sanctification from glory to glory, hopeful when, when we oftentimes stumble along. And then finally, we will know the joy of being filled in the Spirit. That's a lot. That's enough, but that's a lot. We pray the Spirit would be working in our hearts and in our church at this time. Three points of introduction before we look at the text. And the first is that the Holy Spirit um, is surprisingly personal. Now we are accustomed to speaking of God as Father and even knowing Him as God, our Father. Good gift. And as one of the elders, uh, former elders in our church at Paul Tavern would frequently say as he was leading worship, praise, for, <coughs> praise to our Jesus. We have come to know our Jesus as Savior and Lord and the one who is also our brother and our friend and our spouse who loves us and even likes us. But we may see the Holy Spirit oddly as somewhat less personal. After all, he's called the Holy Ghost, which is a little bit strange, isn't it, for our ears? 
He seems more mysterious than a father and a brother. But notice that Jesus comforted his disciples when he was about to leave. He comforted his disciples with these words, it is better that I go because if I don't go, I will not be able to send you the Spirit. The Spirit among us is more useful than even Jesus himself in his earthly ministry. The Holy Spirit is surprisingly personal. He can and does fill us. He's not a force. He's a person. He can and does fill us. We are called to keep in step with the Spirit. And we are warned not to grieve Him as we often do with our words. The Holy Spirit is surprisingly personal, but he is, secondly, he is not only in you, um, he is for you. He is for you. You struggle with your life of sanctification, all of us do, but we know that we have the Spirit as our helper. More often than we would like to admit, our hearts are cold towards God and our duties as children of God. Our hearts are often distracted. We, we look at our phones far more than we look into the face of Jesus in his word. We become disinterested in the things of God. And I'm very thankful then for these words from the Apostle Paul where he tells us that there are two sendings and it is the same Greek word that is behind both of the sendings that we, we reference in Galatians chapter 4, verses 4 through 7. Uh, when the time had fully come, God sent his son. God sent his son, born of a woman, born under law, uh, to um, redeem those under law that we might become, that we might receive the full rights of sons. The first sending is of, for, of Jesus himself. But notice it goes on to say, because you are sons, God sent the Spirit. Essentially, he would send the Spirit so that you would get it. So that you would know the Son who lives inside of you. You would know that you are a son of God yourself. As the Spirit here even helps us cry out, Abba, Father. And, and secures in our mind and hearts that we are we are eternal sons of God. He is in us. He is with us. He is for us. There are several texts that I want, I, if I may be so bold, that I invite you, I call you to commit to memory and to, to hang on to these verses for as long as you live until you see the face of Jesus first one is this. It is found in, in, in Ephesians chapter 1. Paul says this, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the Spirit. I keep asking that the Father would give you the Spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you might know him better. 
And I pray that the eyes, the eyes of your heart would be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the glorious inheritance that we have in the saints, and that you would know, you'd know him, you would know this hope, and you would know his incomparably great power that is for us who believe that same power that he exerted when he raised Jesus from the dead. I want you to live with that text and ask that the Spirit would enlighten the eyes of your heart to know him, to know the hope that is before you, and to know the great power that is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ. The third point, and this is from the Nicene Creed, we know that the Holy Spirit is the Lord and giver of life. The Lord and giver of life. From our own catechism, we love these phrases that, uh, that God is, is one person, Father, Son, and, and, and He is one God, and yet in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And these three are one God, the same in substance and equal in power and glory. Beautiful, balanced, accurate, glorifying to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But Jesus himself said in the sixth chapter of John, it is the Spirit who gives life, and the flesh, our efforts, our attempts, accounts for nothing. It is the Spirit who gives life. He is what some writers have called the executive agent of God in getting things done in creation. The one who himself uh, gets the work done of both creation and redemption. In fact, this uh, the, the Lord is identified in, in uh, Genesis chapter 1, the Spirit of God, Ruach Elohim, the Spirit of God, and, and in both Hebrew and in Greek, the word for spirit is also the same word that is used for wind. This implies or instructs us that the spirit is, is, is air in motion. It is breath in motion. We think of, of the Greek word for spirit, uh, pneuma, is also the word for wind. And, and imagine, if you would, a, a pneumatic drill or a pneumatic, a, a pneumatic wrench. There is, there is great compressed air that is released in staccato blasts. And it sounds so, and it is so powerful. And so we're inviting, calling, praying for, asking the Spirit to show his power in our midst, in our hearts, in the ways that the scripture calls us to expect it. Hearts that are given over more and more to God. Hearts that are, are, are displaying fruit of the spirit. Love, joy, peace, expecting to grow. Patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Well, our theme, as we look through these verses in Genesis chapter 1, our theme is that the, the Spirit, we would know the Spirit who works to form 
uh, uh, to form a people fit for God's presence. We would know the Spirit who works to form a people fit for God's presence. First, the Spirit here works in creation, obviously. He forms a place. He forms an environment. In the beginning, verse 1 says, God created the heavens and the earth. The word that uh, theologians like to say, describing the activity of this work, it is ex nihilo. It is creation out of nothing. It's God created through the Spirit all things from nothing. Phase two is, is listed, is described in, in phase, phase one of this creation ex nihilo is described in verse two. The earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Initially then, this creation, what was formless, there was no shape to it. It, it was void. It was, it was empty darkness. It was a slimy, muddy mess, which is exactly the kind of environment where the Spirit can do his wonderful work. The Spirit is described here as hovering and fluttering over uh, this formless void, this unformed verse, but he is in the process of making a place. Uh, verses phase two, we just we see in, in chapter one, verses three through 31, uh, the disordered chaos is becoming a well-ordered cosmos. Five times the word separate is used in, the, in this chapter. Light from darkness, waters below, from waters above, dry lands and waters, all separated. He is creating a perfect home for the stars and the planets and the fish and the animals. And as you reflect on the Spirit's work that you observe in the creation, what, what do you think of as his best work? I've been seeing uh, telescope images from a telescope on the internet uh, recently, and we're seeing we're seeing more clearly um, distant galaxies that are fantastically beautiful, colorful, artist artfully done. Did did the worship leader use the word exquisitely created in his prayer this morning? We see that the spirit's exquisite work. I am fresh off from the coast of Maine a few weeks ago. I would say that's one of the more exquisite places on this planet. Myself! Others may think otherwise, which is fine. But ascribe glory to the Father, the work of the Spirit, through the Word of the Son, in the creation of these exquisite things. Well, God through the Spirit. The Spirit has made a place, but then we also see that God is creating a people. Flipping over to verse 26, uh, we read, when then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the, uh, of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps over the earth. Let us make man in our image. Puzzled by that? 
Uh, B.B. Warfield put it this way many, many years ago. He said, the Old Testament is something like a dark room. Uh, it, it, is, uh, it, it is full of beautiful things, but you can only barely make out their shapes. You can't see them clearly, but you get a sense that they're there. And then when the New Testament comes along, the light shines clearly and brightly. And we do see the Trinity at work in creation and redemption. Elohim. Um, the power and the breath of God. Chapter 2 slows down the action a little bit here in, in Genesis, and we, we see that God formed Adam from the dust. And then we see in, in verse 7 that uh, then the Lord God formed the man of dust and from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. The spirit wind breathed into this newly formed man, and he became a living being. At the woman, of course, was formed from Adam's rib. The, the spirit is dividing the sexes beautifully and distinctly. There are two sexes without leakage from one to the other, without a blurring of categories. My wife and I attended a concert in Philadelphia just a week or so ago, and I was struck by, it was a concert, we were the oldest people there by a mile. They were two artists that my son actually manages in his work, and, uh, and they are, they are, the artists are targeting a younger audience, shall I put it that way. One of the things that struck me was, was the appearance of people as they walked around in that crowd. I had a hard time distinguishing male from female in some cases, but there was one woman who, uh, who did cause sadness to arise up uh, in me, and that is she was wearing, she was wearing a shirt that said, my gender, hasn't been discovered yet. So the confusion in our world, uh, when we lose sight of the simplicity, clarity, and overall, my friends, the beauty of male and female. From these two, uh, God created all of mankind, and yet a division quickly takes place. The, the serpent would have his children, and the woman would have hers. And out of all of this, on this beautiful creation and the, and the creation, the forming of, of humankind, Jonathan Edwards makes this fascinating comment. Why did God create? What was the purpose for, for the creation of this glorious universe, but in particular this earth where there are people? What is the purpose behind it all? He makes this staggering statement that the world was created in order for God to form a spouse for his son. You and I, as the church of Jesus Christ, are the center point of this creation because we are being formed into a spouse for the son of God. Do not ever devalue the significance, beauty, glory, and purpose of being the people of God 
the spouse of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is, that is the story from the garden to the garden city of, of Revelation. The Spirit created a place for people to dwell in God's presence. The garden, of course, was a perfect environment for God's dwelling. Uh, his temple, God, is walking back and forth in the garden. As an obscure text in the Old Testament says that he was also walking back and forth in the tabernacle. God, uh, uh, Adam, of course, was charged to serve and to guard the garden, even as the priest guarded the tent from unclean contaminants. But Adam listened to the great contaminator, and he talked with the servant, was led astray, obviously, in his rebellion. But even so, the later temple would be decorated in garden decor, carvings of flowers, reminders of Eden, and pointers to the new garden that Revelation speaks of. All of it here, the Spirit works to form a people fit for God's presence. And so, the Spirit's work in redemption. The Spirit's work in redemption. Um, Adam, um, our great father, uh, had descendants, um, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, who um, were in the womb of Exodus. Jacob and his brothers, uh, the fathers, the 12 of the 12 tribes, were in the womb called Exodus, it called Egypt. The Spirit leads them out of Egypt <coughs> with the song of Moses. You may turn with me to Deuteronomy 32. An amazing connection is made. Uh, it, it's almost, the, the Exodus is almost a retelling of the Spirit's work uh, in, in creation. Look with me at verse 10. Um, Deuteronomy 32. Um, he found him in a desert, that is Israel, in a desert land and in a howling waste of the wilderness. And that is the same word in, used, used elsewhere in the Pentateuch to describe the, the wasteland at creation. The only two places in the Pentateuch where this word is used. The howling waste of the wilderness. Moses is drawing back. There's something new coming on here. There's something powerful. Uh, he encircled him, Israel. He, he cared for Israel. He kept Israel as the apple of the eye. Like an eagle that stirs up its nest, that flutters over its young. The same word that is used as the spirit hovering over that primordial, primordial soup. He is here hovering over his people, hovering over its young, spreading out its wings and catching them and bearing them on the pinions. There is a new dwelling place coming and that is the promised land. The Spirit would guide and protect Israel. We're well familiar with the Shekinah glory that separated Israel from the Egyptians and, and preserved their lives. There is a fascinating text, though, in, in, in Exodus chapter 14, where it says that it is the Spirit, it is the Shekinah glory, not only present in the cloud and in the fire, but the one who clogged the wheels of the Egyptians so they couldn't make their way through the Exodus. 
He is saving his people and preserving them from their enemies. Of course, this presence of God settled in the tent and filled the most holy place. Um, later, it would fill the temple and would be the visible presence of God with us. But due, of course, to the habitual disobedience of Israel, they grieved the spirit. And it was Ezekiel who writes of the horrible word, the horrible concept concept of Ichabod, Ichabod, the glory departed. He saw it. The glory departed from the temple. That, of course, is not the end of the story. The power of the Most High would come upon the Virgin Mary, and the Spirit overshadowed her, forming Jesus in her. At Jesus' baptism, the Spirit filled this second Adam. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the Holy Spirit overshadowed Jesus as he became the new dwelling place of God. In the, in the incarnation, the new creation begins. And the one who was baptized, remember how we heard voice, the voice of the Father. We saw the Spirit appearing as a dove, and, and we see Jesus being, being filled with the Spirit. The Spirit rested upon him. And John tells us that he, Jesus, had the Spirit without measure. So we are not at all surprised that in Acts 2, God pours out the Spirit. The church becomes the new dwelling place of God. The people are indwelt with the Spirit, and the living stones make up this new temple. And we look forward in faith to seeing our Lord Jesus return in glory and taking us to that incorruptible garden city. The Spirit works to form a people fit for God's presence. That's a lot of, a lot of theology, and it's beautiful, but it is also very personal. And at this point, we do pray. We pray for the ministry of the Spirit that he would give us eyes to see. He would enlighten the eyes of our heart to see his work all around us and even to see his work within us. What I mean is this. Have, have you um, at times given up hope for change. Have you at times considered that, well, the patterns of sin that you have, the patterns of coldness that you have towards God, even at times towards other people, it's like a dog returning to its line. It's just who you are. Little hope of change. Remember, it is in the chaotic environment, including our cold, fickle hearts, that the Spirit loves to work.
Let not your hearts be troubled, Jesus said. Believe in God, believe also in me. And Jesus would go on to say, and the Spirit whom I will send. Believe in that Spirit. I, I'm struck by the example of uh, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, known as, as I suppose, the, the prince of the English preachers, um, and would be able by his great oratory to gather huge crowds and to see people turning to Christ. And yet he too was also given to depression, given to fear. Is this gospel really true? He even said at one point in his suffering. And at least some of the times when he would rise to go to the pulpit, he would walk to the pulpit and he would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe in the Holy Spirit. And that same Spirit that filled Jesus poured out into a man like Charles Haddon Spurgeon and plenty left over for you and for me to help you overcome your fear, to help you overcome your unbelief as well. Remember, we are not content just to know the truth. We want to know the power of the truth. And so we pray that God would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we would know him, we would know the hope that we have, and we would know the great power that raises Jesus from the dead. That is Ephesians 1, 17 to 19, that I want you to put to memory. But if possible, there's an even more staggering prayer in chapter 3 that I want to pray with you at this time. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his Holy Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of the fullness of God. Jesus loves you. But he's also given the spirit to make powerful changes as you look to him and lighten my eyes. Let me see this power. Let me see your great love. Secondly, then, we also recognize as we, we pray for the eyes to see the spirit's work all around us, including in the church, his great glory project. For the Holy Spirit lives here and he changes everything. I want to read a rather a rather lengthy paragraph, paragraph from C.S. Lewis. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest, most uninteresting person you can you can um, talk to, don't try not to have someone in mind right at that point, 
The dullest and most uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw him now, you would be strongly tempted to worship. Or, or else, a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long, we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all loves, all play, all politics. Really, that's what he said, all politics. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. It is immortals whom we joke with, work with, marry, snub, and exploit. Immortal horrors or everlasting splendors. Are you tempted to look at one another at times with irritation <coughs> and even impatience? I wish they get it. They did the same thing before and they've made the same mistake. People in your own family, people in your church. Now see them as people over whom the spirit is hovering and fluttering and doing his work. We love to say that the spirit of God is sovereign in our justification that is, he decides when and if we become justified. It's the decision and the decree of God. But notice also, it is the Spirit of God who is sovereign over your sanctification and those other people who irritate you so much. Why are they in your life? So that you grow up and learn to love even in the midst of their immaturity. And at times, they're evil. This is the place the Spirit is doing a good work, and he uses sinners to help us along that journey. So the Spirit is growing patience in you. He's growing humility in you. Do you instinctively critique another person? Do you despise their weakness? It is helpful, as my wife and I have talked about this through the years, when irritated with each other, ask this question, Spirit, show me how I am like her. Show me in what way I am like him. And we find that we are more similar than we are different. And that occurs with anyone else that we see. We find if we find them irritating, just ask this question, Spirit, show me, show me in my self-righteous beauty. Show me how I'm like that person. Another thing the speech that the Spirit teaches us is don't, you don't ever, you don't ever give up on another person. If you believe in the Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, you despair of no man, no woman, 
no child. The, the spirit um, regenerates. The spirit works grace when, where, and how he pleases. So you keep praying. Augustine's mother, Monica, is Monica's example. Let's, let's conclude then with our prayer. Father, we pray that you would enlighten the eyes of our heart, that we may know the truth and the power of truth, that we would come to know you better, to know our hope, and to know the glorious inheritance we have in the saints, and to know the great power, the incomparably great power, that you used when you raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. Come as your people, your chosen, loved people. We pray that we would recognize that our dependent cries to you are really also the prayers and cries of the Spirit helping us say, in the worst of conditions, helping us say, Abba, Father, show me Jesus. Show me your love. Show me your power. For it is in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen.